4: Survival. It's not just a reality show, it's a hardwired instinct. When our ancestors confronted stealthy predators on the savanna, their instinct for survival is what allowed them to make it. Lion! Run,
2: Gork! Huh? Where? I no see any.
4: Or not. Okay, some dropped out of the gene pool, but for the rest of us, the instinct to endure remains tightly woven into our DNA. Every day is a fight to make it to the next day.
2: Sure, the challenges take on a different cast in today's world, but still, to survive means to struggle. Where is that sushi truck? My lunch hour is only an hour and a half, and I am starving. There are hardships, for sure. Hey, I ordered unagi. You gave me a nago. And you're charging extra for wasabi?
4: Yes, survival is hard, but in the next few decades, we might face new challenges for survival in a world that is far away, bitterly cold, and relentlessly hostile. Mars. Nature, red in soil and sky.
2: Sure. Right now, you heart Mars. It's the stunning and exotic setting for the new sci-fi thriller, The Martian. And now that NASA has announced that this rusty, dusty planet is more than a little damp, it feels like Mars has laid out a welcome mat.
4: Well, I hate to break it to you, but as much as you may be flipping out over the fourth planet from the sun, Mars doesn't feel the same way about you. Your love letters come back, return to sender. Your emails dismissed to the junk folder. Your flowers left desiccated, stung by ultraviolet light in the cold, really, really cold, unforgiving Martian dirt.
1: Hey, Mars, it's me again. I can't stop thinking of the way the sunlight picks up the iron
4: in your regolith. I just want to say I really like you and... This is an unrequited love story, even with the discovery of liquid water, the seductive panoramas of Ridley Scott's film, and the perception that we might just run into Matt Damon if we visit, the red planet remains hostile territory. If the lack of food doesn't kill you, the radiation will, unless you suffocate from the absence of oxygen first. Yet the public and NASA are touched by Martian madness. I'm
2: Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and the origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology. In this episode, Mars would seem all but inhospitable to life, ours or its own. And yet, NASA has a plan for sending humans there in the next couple of decades, and the discovery of liquid water there raises hopes of it being life-friendly after all. Can this cranky planet be tamed? And just how long could you survive on nothing but Martian potatoes?
4: Andy Weir joins a long list of science fiction writers preoccupied with a red planet, but his book offers a twist. You may recall how in The War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells imagined Martians taking over the Earth. Well, the 1938 radio adaptation of his novel sent waves of panic through the nation as listeners, tuning into the Mercury Theater on the Air, discovered that Martians had invaded New Jersey.
2: And since then, the idea that Martians might come to our home planet for nefarious purposes has become a reliable conceit of Hollywood.
4: Now, a new film envisions not Martians invading Earth, but Earthlings invading Mars. The film, The Martian, based on Andy Weir's novel, is set in a not-too-distant future when we've sent humans to Mars successfully. Well, kind of, but then that's the whole plot.
2: It's sort of a Man versus Mars scenario, and the film is now invading theaters. It stars Matt Damon, is directed by Ridley Scott of Alien and Blade Runner fame, and so is a far cry from its inchoate origins as a series of blog posts by a computer programmer.
4: Okay, Andy, in reading this book, I could hear Matt Damon narrating the voice of Mark Watney. Was that because I knew he was going to be in the film, or, I mean, you weren't... Writing it with him in mind, were you? Oh, no. I had no idea when I was writing it that it would have any appeal
1: at all. I thought it would just be for dorks like me. So you wrote it originally as a blog, right? It was a serialized blog? Yeah. I would post it chapter by chapter to my website, usually about one chapter every two months. And uh, what was the readership? I mean, in terms of the size of the readership. Based on my mailing list, it was about 3,000 people. And I'd accumulated those readers over 10 years of writing short fiction and comics and stuff. So this is not the first uh, fiction you've written. Oh, no, not at all. It's just the first one that was worth publishing.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to say what happens in the in the book, so people listening to this don't have to worry about spoilers mm-hmm. in our interview here, uh, spoilers for the movie or the book. But we can discuss some of the challenges that Watney faced trying to survive on the red planet. Now, he is abandoned there. He's left behind. It's him versus Mars, if you will. That's not a spoiler. But generally speaking, what are the immediate challenges that he has? Well, he has a small habitat
1: that was intended to last a crew of six, 31 souls. A soul is a day on Mars, which is just a little bit more than an Earth day. So about 31 days. And he's got enough food to last six people 31 days, which means one person, 180 some odd. And he has some reserve. The next manned mission to Mars is going to be four years away,
4: and that's his only hope of getting home. So he needs to figure out how to survive that long. Okay, but uh, food, I mean, at least he has some food. It would seem to me my first concern was, am I going to take my next breath?
1: <laughs> well, the uh, the Hab, his, his habitat has a, has a closed-loop air system. In other words, all the carbon dioxide that he exhales gets processed and the carbons get stripped off and the oxygen is re-liberated. And the water is also in a closed system, so all the water that exits his body through various means. By the way, you know, about half the water you lose comes from water vapor in your breath, not not where you'd expect.
4: Well, he's not doing a lot of
1: talking. Well, he's doing a lot of breathing. <laughs> and uh, so the water reclaimer claims it out of the air. The HAB is a pressure vessel, so that's shelter as well. So air and water are taken care of and shelter. So his primary problem is food. We have the technology very easily to take care of every other human or biological need in a closed system.
4: But we have no way of just using technology to make food. That's kind of interesting because that might have been the last thing that came to my mind. Now, he is in this HAB. Well, what about just the temperature? I mean, you know, daytime temperatures on Mars are not exactly like California.
1: Uh, but every now and then they are warmer than it is in Canada. So the HAB is powered by solar cells. And so he has plenty of energy as long as sunlight keeps hitting the surface. And there's not a huge amount of weather on Mars. There is weather on Mars, but not so much that it interferes with his power supply. And so the HAB uses that to heat things up and, and generally
4: run all the equipment. Okay, so his primary concern is food. Uh, Anything you want to say about that? I mean, I I assume he doesn't just die of starvation in Chapter 2.
1: No, no. Yeah, and it's not much of a spoiler. Also, it's all over the place in the movie trailers, so it's not giving much away. He's a botanist, so it's a fairly fortunate skill set to have if you're stranded and need to make your own food. And there was some potatoes in the supply rations, and so he plants them to grow more potatoes. And potatoes are good because they have the highest calorie yield
4: per unit land area of any food. I that's kind of interesting because it's said that potatoes are, are what made the European cities possible because of all that nutrition in a, an easily transported package. I didn't know that. You, well, you know, Mars is not the first to benefit from the potato. Your book has been praised as being quite technically accurate, and you did have a few fact checkers, namely the readers as you serialized the book online. Can you give me a fact or two that you got wrong and that the uh, readers corrected? Sure.
1: One thing I messed up was I just completely forgot how gases interact with each other. And there's a part in the book where he accidentally creates a bunch of free hydrogen inside of his habitat. And so there's just an excess of, like, elemental hydrogen in the hab. And in my earlier version of it, I said, like, well, the hydrogen all floats up to the top of the hab. And so he has to be really careful not to let it mix in with the oxygen too much, and it's a big fire hazard and stuff like that. And I immediately got email from chemists and, you know, high school students who, you know, was like, no, it doesn't work that way. Gases uniformly distribute within their volume. So there'd be as much hydrogen at the bottom of the hab as there was at the top. And so I rewrote that part to be accurate. That's one example. If he just had one spark, that that would have
4: combined all the hydrogen with the oxygen, right? Right. Yeah, that's (laughs) that's the problem. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been a dramatic end. I understand that you developed a computer program to calculate all the orbital trajectories of the spacecraft in your book. Um, Why was that necessary? Is anybody going to notice if they were wrong? Mm. Well, I'd notice. And uh, it was important to me. Also
1: orbital dynamics is a thing that I consider fun. In actually doing a normal point acceleration orbital dynamics is not that hard. It seems like it's super hard, but you don't actually need anything much more complicated than algebra to do it. But Hermes, which is the name of their interplanetary vessel, is powered by ion engines, so it has a very small acceleration. It's about two millimeters per second per second, but it's happening constantly. Now, I tried to, you know, figure out through math, okay, what is the optimal course to get from Earth to Mars, and you know, what would be the best launch window. Once I was about ten integrals in, I wanted to hang myself. So first, I said, what does NASA do? How do they solve these things? And I found out they do it all through simulation on computers. So I'm yeah, like,
4: they, they don't write down the equations. They just uh, sort of digitally. Compute the equations.
1: Well, what they do is they just time slice it. They say, like, okay, here are the positions of everything. Now advance it one second. And mm-hmm. like that, they integrate it. And it's a lot more complicated than that. But basically, that's, that's what they do. And so I'm like, well, I'm a computer programmer. I've been a computer programmer for 25 years. I should be able to do this. So I wrote software to figure that stuff out for me and to provide a UI for, like, turning and moving the ship and figuring out... And I, and I found all the course
4: trajectories I wanted for the book. I think Wired Magazine called your book the greatest math puzzle you've ever read or something like that, right? It's because a, of the technical detail.
1: It's a series of algebra word questions. I, I, don't, I don't know why people like it so much, but they do. Well, well, and I'm not going to complain. Yes, it does.
4: well, you shouldn't. All right, now Watney, when he's on Mars, he doesn't see any signs of life. And of course, he's focused on his own life. <laughs> But did you think at all about maybe going into the field of astrobiology a little bit and and seeing whether there actually are Martians maybe under the dirt there outside the window? I did consider it, but I decided against it. And
1: so this is a little spoiler. Uh, It's not much of a spoiler. In The Martian, there's no alien life discovered. He doesn't find microbes or anything like that. And the reason is because this mission already has an astoundingly unlikely event that happened where an astronaut got stranded and left behind. Everybody thought he was dead. This is all very unlikely. The reader will accept one extremely unlikely event as the impetus for the story, but they won't accept two. So what are the odds that the manned mission to Mars that involves this extremely unlikely event is also the one that happens to discover that there's life on Mars, right? That's just too much
4: coincidence. So I decided against that. Okay, Andy, SETI radio telescopes make an appearance in the book. These radio telescopes, of course, are what we use to try and use drop-on signals from extraterrestrials. Can you divulge anything Mm. about how they factor into the plot here?
1: Well, our protagonist, no one even knows he's alive, so he's got to get a radio signal out so that people can hear it. And he figures his best bet at being detected, because he doesn't think anybody's going to be listening for him, is either the deep space network run by JPL or SETI might pick up his signal. And then once that happens, they would very quickly figure out he's still alive, and then things would uh, go from there. So he was uh, kind of counting
4: on SETI. Do you think that the interest in Mars... Promulgated by your book will speed up our efforts to get to the red planet? Are we going to do it sooner thanks to you? Uh, I
1: don't know. I don't know about that. People say that the Martian will you know help rekindle interest in uh, space travel. Maybe people are mixing up cause and effect. It may be that stories like the Martian, and then before it, interstellar and gravity, maybe these are popular because the public is increasing its interest in space travel for other reasons, or just as a movement on its own, which
4: would be great. But what do you say, Andy? to those, and there are many of those, who will claim that sending people into space is the wrong thing. Forget sending the humans. Send the hardware. You get a lot more science bang for buck by sending motorized skateboards to Mars than sending people. You absolutely do. So if your
1: objective is purely scientific understanding, then you're much better off sending robots. Actually, if you want scientific understanding of Mars, the very best thing you could possibly do is send a whole bunch of rovers to Mars and then put humans in Mars orbit. It's much easier to put humans in Mars orbit and bring them home than it is to actually land them on the surface and bring them home. And then if you have humans on Mars orbit, you have zero latency communication between them and the rovers, and they can remote control them like RC cars, and they would be almost as effective as having a human on the surface. So if your objective is pure science, that is probably the best way to do it. However, that's not my objective. My objective is I want there to be a self-sustaining human population somewhere other than Earth because 25 years as a computer programmer has taught me the importance of backing things up. And as long as we're all on one planet, we have a small but non-zero chance of extinction. When we're on two, then there's almost nothing that can wipe out our species. So, Andy, you're selling insurance.
4: I'm selling insurance. (laughs) Andy Weir, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having
2: me. Andy Weir is the author of The Martian, Really some surprises
4: in there because he points out that the real technical challenges of having people on Mars is not what you'd think. It isn't the lack of oxygen or the, the lack of water or even the temperatures which are so cold, but as Andy pointed out, warmer than Canada. Well, at least some parts of Canada. But the, the food is the problem because all the other stuff you can fix by taking water out of the ground and breaking it up. But food, well, that's a little harder. So we've heard Andy Weir describe how he endeavored to make the book The Martian as technically accurate as possible, but it is still science fiction. A NASA scientist who was on the set of The Martian will sort out fact from fantasy in the film for us and how it stacks up to the agency's own plans to send humans to the Red Planet.
2: It's cold and unforgiving, and yet we still want to go there. We're smitten with Martian madness on Big Picture Science.
4: NASA is very good at two things, going into space and promoting the idea of going into space. No public relations naïve, the agency knows a right promotional opportunity when it sees one. The film, The Martian, is plum perfect. It overlaps with the agency's current goals for designing a mission to send humans to the Red Planet. And so, NASA got involved.
2: In the film, the missions to Mars are part of NASA's Ares program. In reality, NASA doesn't have a mission yet, but research into the human exploration of Mars is underway. The hope is to put some of us on the planet by 2040 or so.
4: The plan would be to send a crew to Mars and return them safely to Earth. And for that, a thorough study of the Martian environment is required.
2: Jim Green is director of NASA's Planetary Science Division. His office is at NASA headquarters, and he was a science advisor to the film. This is one Martian movie that doesn't have NASA scientists rolling their eyes at the implausible situations often depicted in sci-fi. No ray guns or faster-than-light travel here.
4: The film is praised by the agency for being technically and scientifically accurate, but it's not a documentary about our going to Mars. Dr. Green reminds us that the film is still science fiction remarkably plausible science fiction.
3: The look and feel is wonderful. It's still science fiction, and when I go to a movie, I always check my science at the door and go on in and enjoy it.
4: Okay, but, I mean, this is something that could conceivably happen. It's not like falling into a black hole and coming out the other end.
3: Well, in a way, you have to realize that NASA would never leave anybody behind, and the initial premise of the movie is a little off you know the sandstorm or what we call a dust storm on Mars is so intense that causes the initial problem we wouldn't have that on Mars today. Well, we'll get back
4: to that, but the premise of this story is that the astronaut Mark Watney is stranded on Mars. He needs to find a way home. (laughs) And this is, of course, assuming that trips to Mars are indeed two-way tickets. Is that always NASA's situation?
3: Because there are companies out there, there are private initiatives that would take you to Mars on a one-way ticket. Indeed, NASA's approach is we're going to go and we're coming back.
4: Now, the Ares 3 crew, the one that Mark Watney was part of, use an MAV, and I think that stands for Mars Ascent Vehicle, to get off the red planet. Is that how you would really do it? I mean, a small rocket to reach an orbiting large rocket, is that the way you get back from Mars?
3: Actually, that's a perfect way to do it. A Mars Ascent Vehicle is uh, one of those things that we're planning right now to build to bring samples up to orbit for which then they'll be captured and brought home.
4: And uh, obviously, this film is set in the future, but it's not the distant future. You get the feeling that it's not specified, best I can tell. But it's
3: kind of the near future. And does NASA actually have near-term plans to send people to Mars? We're following the president's direction, and that is have humans in the vicinity of Mars, you know, perhaps a figure eight around or maybe even visit Phobos or Deimos in the 2030s, and then boots on the ground in the 2040s and 2050s.
4: In the Martian, they land at a place called Acidilia Planitia. It's flat, doesn't have many craters. Is that the kind of place where you would
3: want to land? It sounds like it might be a little safer, but also a little duller. It actually is at the bottom of an ancient ocean. There may be some aspects about it that we might want to learn about. It is a beautiful place to be in the book because it's very conveniently located to several things that Mark Watney needs and gets access to. So it is an integral part of the book.
4: Obviously, The Martian was not filmed on Mars and probably not in a studio in Arizona. Where was it filmed? And do you think it accurately depicts landscapes on the Red
3: Planet? I mean, it's you know, are the visuals really what Mars would look like? Well, when you look at Mars, it's visually stunning, you know, in the movie. And in many ways, Mars is exactly that way. I think they do an outstanding job of that. However, Mars has enormous vistas, huge shield volcanoes that are bigger than some of our states. It's got valleys that, if they were put on the United States, would connect the Atlantic and the Pacific. I mean, just some tremendous landforms that uh, we would really love to see with boots on the ground.
4: Sounds to me like postcards from Mars would be big sellers. Uh, a little more about the science and technology. Now, the Ares 3 crew, which is what this is about, or at least one member of that crew largely, uh, they get into trouble because of a massive storm on Mars, and the wind really does a job on their their encampment there. Um, is that really the way it would be? Because the air on Mars is pretty darn
3: thin. Yeah, the air on Mars is very thin in the sense that the pressure is about half a percent here of the Earth's. And so consequently, even a 120 mile an hour wind on Mars, which it can be that high at times, wouldn't straighten an American flag. However, it does kick up very talcum powder-like dust, which then reflects the sunlight and makes the middle of the day look like the middle of the night. That does happen on Mars. Mark
4: Watney uh, creates water on Mars by burning hydrazine to separate the hydrogen from the uh, nitrogen, and then he has the hydrogen ignite in an atmosphere that contains some oxygen because he needs that to breathe. Now, that sounds explosively dangerous to me. I remember when my chemistry teacher would take Coke bottles filled with hydrogen and let them combine with the oxygen in the room, and it was
3: a big bang. Is that the way NASA would do it? Well, I think in the film, you'll see that's exactly what happens. But there are so many resources on Mars now that we're learning about today that actually are very exciting. For instance, Curiosity is finding there's a lot of humidity in the air. In addition to that, there's a lot of water trapped in the soils than ever imagined. In fact, in the soils, there's also nitrates. So indeed, Mark wouldn't need to add water and fertilizer beyond the nitrates, but it's actually easier to grow food than what he makes it out to be
4: this guy runs into trouble at every turn. I mean, you can't go, you know, 30 pages in the book without some major new catastrophe. But it sounds like, you know, maybe it might not be that
3: bad. Well, there's always challenges. It does show several things. You know, it shows the extremes in temperature. On Mars, the temperature extreme can be 120 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit in one day. You know, the highs at any location here on Earth may range 100 degrees over a year, but that kind of range in a day, that's really telling and hard on everything, day after day after day. And he runs into that, and he has to cope with that, and he has to overcome it.
4: Where layers?
3: Uh, it's lovely that Watney visits and digs up the Pathfinder probe. That's
4: nostalgic, but this probe stopped transmitting, I think, in the late 1990s. Could an astronaut
3: really get it working again, or is that uh, wishful thinking? That's very wishful thinking. It's frozen, and more than likely, its components are completely shot. This is, of course, what happened to Spirit. You know, It ran out of power, and when that happened, the night took over, and the, and the extreme temperatures on Mars uh, would destroy the electronics. Jim,
4: duct tape. It fig- <laughs> figures big in the story. figures big in a lot of stories. Does it
3: figure big in NASA? I mean, does NASA buy a lot of duct tape? Well, you have to ask the astronaut corps that, but I can't imagine them going onto a space station or even being in any of the Apollos without duct tape. If you remind yourself of what happened on Apollo 13, when they actually had too much CO2 that was actually being measured, they had duct tape. And they were able to make a scrubber and get that CO2 out and survive on their way home. So... I'm sure duct tape's available. It is a universal tool, by the way.
4: (laughs) You know, the Martian confronts the possibility that uh, Mark Watney has to travel thousands of miles across the forbidding Martian landscape. He does this with some rovers that he sort of rebuilt. Is that a better deal than doing what, you know, Robert Scott did in the
3: Antarctic and just walking? Oh, he's got to have the rovers. You know, the locations that he's at are indeed so far away. But I have to tell you this. NASA's currently planning on their human exploration sites to be exploration zones. These zones are about a hundred kilometers in diameter. And within that diameter, we will land in one location, we will build a HABS and live in another location, and there'll be other scientific areas within that hundred kilometers that they will trek over and analyze data, bring back rock samples, and a whole series of other things.
4: So it's not so unrealistic? This is somewhat interesting to me. NASA follows the activities of the Martian, the guy down on the ground, with satellite imagery. And he can even communicate with them by laying out rocks in Morse code. Now, he's probably not, you know, laying out rocks that are 10 feet on a side or something. I mean, are any of the satellites orbiting Mars, do they have the resolution necessary to actually see what a guy like Mark
3: Watney would be doing down there? Absolutely. We can see the rovers from space. We have an orbiter called Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, where one pixel, that means the smallest part of an image, is on the order of um, a foot by a foot. You can see your coffee table from orbit. So indeed, we'd be able to see the HAB, we'd be able to see the rovers, we'd certainly be able to see the solar panels, no problem. That's truly remarkable. Finally, Jim, you're NASA's Planetary
4: Science Director. I sometimes think that the first part of the 21st century now, in other words, is like the first part of the 16th century where we had one generation that mapped the earth. And now I think our current generation is going to map the solar system. They've already, you know, gotten pretty far with that. That
3: makes your job really special, it seems to me. Do you experience it that way? I think I got the best job in NASA. I really do. Every day I see what's happening in the community. The science results that are coming out are truly astounding. I mean, I'm very proud of the scientists. I'm very proud of what work we're doing. It's just leading to one exciting discovery after another. Jim Green, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Seth.
2: Jim Green is director of NASA's Planetary Science Division. So, Seth, you made a comparison with today in the 21st century and the beginning of the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about that?
4: Well, yeah, only that at the beginning of the 16th century, wooden ships and the navigation devices they had in those days, which are pretty crude, actually, were uh, just enough to map the entire world. And so they did that. They did that in one generation. It was just, you know, suddenly we could make a globe and, and see where everything was, okay? And I was just suggesting to Dr. Green that the same thing is happening here in the first couple of decades of the 21st century. We finally have the technique to map out the entire solar system, and, and I think we're doing it.
2: So you weren't making a comparison to NASA's space program at the beginning of the 16th century, because I think it was barely off the ground at that time.
4: Well, it wasn't very ambitious, and I have to say the funding was less than it is today. (laughs) Well, okay, as we imagine the kinds of sacrifices we'd have to make to survive on Mars, of course there are many, and one of the biggest is, is food. You may not wonder where your next meal is coming from, but that's because we have farms on Earth. And yeah, NASA provided Mark Watney some nice eats as freeze-dried food packets, but eventually he's forced to improvise by growing and then living off potatoes.
2: I'm frying up some delicious hash browns. It's not a spoiler to say that potatoes are part of the plot of The Martian. It comes up early in the book and it's featured in the movie trailer. And so we feel we can talk about it now. Mmm, these are looking good. After his rations run out, the astronaut Mark Watney is forced to survive just on spuds, but his options for preparing them are limited. Forget scalloped potatoes, tater tots, or even hash browns. Try microwaved with ketchup every meal for weeks.
4: Okay, you're making me hungry, Molly. And I'm not even on Mars. But, okay, let's say you survive this seven-month-long trip. You have water, you have oxygen, you have some of the most sophisticated hardware ever developed keeping you alive. But you still have to eat. And what if you're forced to make do the way the film's astronaut did? Well, Christopher Wanjik is a health and science reporter who has written about the consequences of surviving off a single food source and, strangely, about a man for whom that food source was the potato. Chris in The Martian. The astronaut Mark Watney eventually is forced to live off potatoes and just potatoes for months at a time. Uh, how long could I survive just eating potatoes?
5: Well, you know, it's uh, one of those questions that, uh, you know, the answer is depends. It depends if you're, if you're only eating potatoes. You'll probably be dead in, a, you know, maybe a half a year. I would. Well, mm-hmm. What would happen to my body? I mean... <laughs> well, if you got nothing else coming in, Potatoes lack a few things you kind of need. Vitamin A, you'll eventually go blind. Uh, Vitamin E, you're going to have nerve damage. No vegetable source, as you might know, has a vitamin B12, and that is crucial also for uh, uh, nerve conductivity.
4: Now, as I recall in the story, The Martian, actually uh, the protagonist has access to some... Supplements, and I assume that includes vitamins. Does he need anything more than vitamins to make up for
5: whatever potatoes don't have? Well, I'd be curious whether he has fat. Fat is uh, essential, and potatoes don't have it, uh, unless, of course, you're deep frying them. But uh, I don't know if he has a deep fryer up on Mars. I see. So, but what's good about a potato?
4: I mean, of all the things that he <laughs> could have, could have mm-hmm. considered having there, I mean, uh, you know, sort of at the discretion of the author, that, I mean, it could have been cabbage or celery or something
5: like that. I figured potatoes are not the worst. What, what, celery would be the worst. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, no, I can think of some better ones, but potatoes, the, the, there's a couple positive elements of potatoes. They're, they're easy to grow and they're easy to store. Uh, That's about it. You know, that's why, uh, you know, the Irish depended on them in in very trying times. Of course, they got wiped out because disease can affect them rather easily, so that's a downside of potatoes. Um, But there there are modest amounts of many nutrients in there, but they're not particularly high in any particular nutrient, except for vitamin C, surprisingly, probably about as much as an orange. That's a real surprise. Really? Well,
4: because I recall reading somewhere that it was the potato that made the cities of Europe possible. Suddenly, you know, you could get foodstuffs enough to support tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people because of the potato being, well, as you say, easy to grow and maybe fairly straightforward to transport. Uh, but it wasn't on the basis of the fact that this is the perfect food.
5: No, it's it's a staple. It's a basic energy source. Uh, half the world relies on uh, rice. I mean, if you're going to send one crop to Mars... It shouldn't be potatoes. I can think of uh, several better ones. Uh, Sorghum comes to mind and uh, cassava. Uh, Cassava is something that more than a billion people here on Earth eat. It's not particularly rich in nutrients, but it's incredibly easy to grow in poor soil, and that's what Mars is all about. And uh, the other interesting thing about cassava is being genetically engineered to have more nutrients in it, particularly vitamin A and vitamin E, to help these people that are chronically deficient in these vitamins. Uh, So you would think NASA would come up with some genetically engineered crop that could grow well in the Martian soil and also supply most of the nutrients that you need.
4: Well, Christopher, Hmm. even if we could survive on the potatoes with some supplements that were kind of unnamed it's got to be gosh darn monotonous to just eat potatoes. I mean, not fried with onions, not scalloped with cheese. Does that place a hardship on our system? I mean, is boredom part of the nutritional problem, or is it just psychological?
5: Uh, absolutely. It will be a boredom issue. I can think of uh, two examples of this. One is in my own work with a book that I wrote for the International Labor Organization called Food at Work, the way workers around the world have access to food. I did a case study in... Antarctica, uh, McMurdo Station down there in Antarctica. And during the winter, you know, the six months of darkness, no flights are allowed in. So no more food supplies are coming in. And they are relying on entirely canned food and frozen food. And that food lacks a crunch. And these guys that I talked to down there, that really gets to them that lack of a crunch. And they actually built a greenhouse so that they could grow lettuce and crunchy things so that their body can feel the crunch. It's a real psychological lift, you know, to be eating just canned slop all the time. Uh, their morale was really low. So I think that's definitely going to be an issue there. I can think of the other uh, situation where this almost happened. I mean, there was that uh, guy out in Washington, the uh, Chris Voigt, his name was, he was a the potato spokesperson, (laughs) he uh, oversaw the potato society out there in, in that group. It was a bit of a gimmick. He wanted to eat only potatoes for 60 days. And he did so in the first two days, everything was fine, but he was <laughs> slowly regretting that he did this because it was so boring eating only potatoes. And he was frying them and doing different things with them, 20 potatoes a day to get enough calories, but it was only potatoes. It was getting incredibly boring. I think it was hallucinating at the end, thinking his wife was a potato. <laughs> Oh, well, maybe one sitting on the couch. Right. <laughs> well,
4: you know, that really does beg the question, though, why, why it is that our metabolism uh, requires this variety. Because, you know, I'm thinking of cows out there in the landscape, and, and they just eat grass. What's going to be for breakfast tomorrow? Well, how about grass? And then lunch, it'll be grass, and dinner, it'll be grass. They don't, they don't seem to have any problem with these sort of monoculture diets kind of thing. And yet,
5: obviously, they wouldn't work for us. Uh, that's an interesting point I never thought about before. I guess every animal is, is different. Um, cows chew their cud and, and produce something in one stomach that uh, creates more nutrients that they can re-digest. So every animal does their own thing in that regard. All humans really need is protein, fat, and, and a bunch of uh, nutrients. Hmm. You know, I think what's, what makes us uniquely human, of course, is our brain, and it's our brain that is requiring such uh, a unique set of nutrients, B12 being one of them. This is actually evidence that pre-humans were not vegan (laughs) because it would be impossible to evolve a human brain on a vegan diet without the access to B12. And a lot of these other uh, fat-soluble nutrients um, such as A and E also go along with nerve and uh, neural development. So I think being uniquely human with our brain uh, up the ante with our new nutritional needs.
4: So if there is one food that uh, you could eat to survive, what would it be?
5: Well, people don't think this way, and it would probably be pretty hard to get it on Mars, but it would be the whale. Of course, the Inuit <laughs> in the northern parts of the, uh, of the world, sometimes they live entirely on uh, marine animals and whale in particular. Uh, whale will have, obviously, the B12 you need because it's an animal product. But depending on what parts of the whale you eat, including undigested parts in the whale's own digestive system, you could get every single nutrient you need.
4: The whale, the perfect food. That's right. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not the, the right thing to say these days. Right.
5: I'll be getting letters on this one.
4: Christopher Wanjik, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me.
2: Christopher Wanjik is a health and science reporter.
4: Well, to grow potatoes or any kind of food, you need water. And now it turns out that Mars may be better able to help us out with that. Details of the discovery of the liquid stuff on the red planet next. It's Martian Madness on Big Picture Science.
6: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times.
4: The satirical paper The Onion recently captured a certain public fatigue with the fanfare around NASA press conferences. The paper's headline was, Nation Demands NASA Stop Holding Press Conferences Until They Discover Some Little Alien Guys. And this, of course, was a reference to the agency's announcement that it had found liquid water on Mars.
2: NASA has made water-related announcements throughout the years. The discovery of ice at the poles, for example. So while it may seem that the latest discovery might be all wet, it truly is different. Scientists have for the first time confirmed that liquid water flows on Mars. And to our knowledge, if you want to discover some little alien guys, finding a pool of water is encouraging.
4: Okay, Mars is not suddenly a tropical paradise. It's still cold, it still only has a thin, unbreathable atmosphere. And as for water, well, we're talking about small streaks of damp dirt, not pools of standing water. And it's very, very salty water. Still, These features have not only fueled more speculation about Martian life, but they've also provoked discussion about how we might find it, because it's been a NASA mantra for a very long time in the hunt for life, follow the
2: water. The high-resolution camera on NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spotted thousands of dark streaks descending along slopes of craters and mountains. The streaks changed with the seasons. They got longer during the summer and faded as the temperatures cooled. Jim Watson is the director of the Mars Exploration Program. He works at NASA headquarters. And he explained these puzzling streaks, known as recurrent slope lineae.
0: So these are streaks of moist soil that work their way down the hillside. So lineae being a line, a recurring being the fact that these uh, show up every summer and then disappear in the wintertime. So they recur season after season as you go through the years.
4: And of course, slope, it's on the hill. So these are, if you will, long fingers of uh, what looked like dark dirt to the orbiters, but are in fact caused by water that's, well, I mean, uh, is it on the surface or is it, you know, just an inch below the surface? Do we know? We don't know how deep. It certainly penetrates to some depth.
0: It's the emergence on the surface is what we're observing from the reconnaissance that we're taking from the
4: uh, orbiter. Are there a lot of these lineae? I mean, I've seen a couple of photos. They've been around for years, and people have been pointing at them and saying, well, this is interesting. Is there more than a handful of these things? Yes, there are. They seem to be uh, all over the place. Well, that's actually good news. Now, naively, I would think that maybe it's too cold for liquid water on the red planet. Generally speaking, it is very cold on Mars. Wouldn't, Wouldn't water just freeze in place? So you are right, it is too cold for water on the surface.
0: What is happening here is there are minerals, salt-type minerals, uh, in this particular area, and that lowers the freezing point of the water when they are mixed. Just like in the wintertime, those of you that aren't in California, you tend to keep the snow and ice off the sidewalks by tossing salt in there. It dissolves in the water and it lowers the freezing point. Same thing going on here.
4: What about Mars's thin atmosphere? I mean, you know, it's like about 100 times thinner than the atmosphere here in California. And if I took a glass of water, if I were the Martian walking around the place, and I, and I just spilled a glass of water onto the surface, now that water would immediately turn to vapor, right? I mean, how, how do you keep that liquid there? Again, it's finding
0: exactly the right balance of pressure and temperature for uh, when that occurs. And what we're seeing here, and this has been the exciting part of the investigation and the results that came out of it is during the summertime and these particular hillsides, it looks like we have the right chemistry in the water and the right pressure in the atmosphere and the right temperatures such that it can exist for a period of time. But you're right, as soon as you get out of that particular temperature regime, then it disappears, hence the disappearance of these lineae in the wintertime.
4: Oh, okay. So, in a sense, they evaporate uh, every, every winter, or uh, I don't know, I guess the correct term is not evaporate, but they sublimate. They, correct. They, they disappear, and then, then they come back the next summer. That sounds like there's a source of this water. Now, you've suggested that maybe the water is just coming out of the atmosphere, but it might be coming from underground.
0: Yes, there's two theories, uh, and we don't know which is correct at this point in time, or if both phenomena are occurring, but it could be condensing out of the atmosphere,
4: or could it be emerging from subsurface? Well, that would be exciting, because if it's coming from underneath, and presumably there's a lot of liquid water under the uh, rusty, dusty surface of Mars there. could that be? Could there be huge aquifers under the surface of Mars, or is that just too speculative to even say? Well, we know there's huge reservoirs of,
0: of ice below the surface. Whether there's huge reservoirs of liquid water below the surface, we don't know for sure. But it would uh, it would make sense that at some point, at least some portion of the year, in certain circumstances, there may be liquid well below the surface as well. Could anything live in that water? Possibly. I mean, as as the uh, environment changed on, on Mars, and we know now at one time... In its history, it was a very hospitable environment there. But as the atmosphere uh, thinned, as the oceans evaporated, the rivers evaporated, if there was life there, it would make sense that it would retreat underground, following the water. You know, just as we see in very extreme environments here on Earth, microbial life exists in the most bizarre of places. One could
4: imagine it may be possible there. Okay, well, then I have to ask you this, Jim. Ever since the Viking lander experiments of the 1970s, NASA has adopted a methodical, maybe some would say conservative, approach to looking for life on Mars, you know, first establish the history of water on the planet and then design an experiment to go look in places where water might have once existed and search for remnants of life that might have been there three or four billion years ago. Is that, is that correct? Is that the current strategy? That is the strategy. Well, why not look for life that might still be there? I mean, it sounds to me like, uh, you know, this is a big sign on Mars saying, hey, look for microbes where I am, right at these lineae. Well, this
0: is emerging information, and we are certainly studying and have been studying for a short while now just exactly what kind of instrumentation and how could we approach these regions to make observations there. But up to this point in time, we have not... Uh, I had a good understanding of the water cycle, per se, and so we've been looking for signs of life in the past, remnants of life, prehistoric fossils, if you will, of microbial life, and the evidence of those are the building blocks that they would use to support life. We know that everywhere there's water on Earth, You tend to find some form of life, and so that's the reason and thinking behind the strategy of follow the water. So we looked at the geological evidence for water on Mars, where the rivers and the lakes were, and and we tended to follow the boundaries of those areas in in our search for evidence of past life. We felt that the probability of finding uh, that evidence is far greater than just going to one particular spot and observing whether life exists there at this point in time. It's sort of a needle in the haystack approach to do that. So it seemed more productive, more promising to take a methodical approach to following the path that
4: life may have followed in searching out whether or not we're alone. Well, do you think that this is a game changer as far as that strategy is concerned? I mean, don't you think that there will be a lot of pressure now to, you know, send something to one of these lineae and dig up the muck, put it under a microscope, and see if there's anything wiggling in there. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if we don't do it, maybe the Europeans will do it, or somebody else will do it, right? That, that's right. No, no, quite a few people are very excited about that possibility. Okay. So, uh, I mean, obviously this is the kind of thing you might only say at a cocktail party, but do you think that NASA's going to do this in a fairly short order, or is this uh, something that's going to be decades in the future? Doing do an investigation on
0: Mars takes a fair amount of time, as you know. You know, the, uh, the most ambitious of missions uh, take five years from the time you start to the time you launch, and then almost another year to get there. So even if we were to start today, it's the better part of a decade before you get there on uh, just a fairly simple, straightforward mission. A mission to go to one of these areas is certainly more complex. And demanding, and we have to expand our capabilities and some of the technologies we use to make sure that we can access these areas. Keep in mind, these are on slopes. These aren't on the flatter regions that we're able to drive our rovers on now. These are on slopes and hillsides. So we're going to have to do a little bit of mountain climbing in order to access them.
4: Well, Jim... You know, we're talking about timescales here of years, maybe even a decade. And yet, in the novel and film, The Martian, NASA reacts to a challenge, in this case an abandoned astronaut, in a matter of months. So it sounds like if you build a fire under the agency, they can move fast. So what do you you say to that? Oh, you can certainly move
0: fast if sufficiently motivated and funded. And I've commented on the movie, it looked like they had unlimited access to funding in order to uh, go save Mark.
4: Yeah. And And they did a
0: great job. And that's generally not the case. Generally speaking. Do you, do you figure this is going to help NASA's uh, Mars exploration initiatives? Oh, I think so. Anything that brings the public eye to, uh, to exploration and uh, shows just what the potential is there for society, for our curiosities, and, and for the fundamental questions, are we alone and, and how can I get out there and explore, I think it'll do great. Jim
4: Watson, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure.
2: Jim Watson is the director of the Mars Exploration Program. He's at NASA headquarters. So,
4: here it is. Mars, which has figured in more sci-fi than any planet other than Earth, still has this power to beckon us. And the spectacular visuals of the Martian will allow us to experience, even if only viscerally, the incredible thrill of being there. It's a spectacular setting, but make no mistake. I mean, compared to Mars, the hostile places of Earth look positively benign. It's trying to smother, starve, and freeze, Mark Watney, and there's nothing unrealistic about that. And yet, NASA wants to do what is hard, not what is easy, and send humans to the red planet within two dozen years. There's reason to do so now, now that we've found liquid water to entice us and to support us, although I suppose we should take along some all-tater emergency rations. Ten thousand generations have seen Mars in the sky. This is the generation that will see it underfoot.
2: Thanks to the talent that has to deal with more than a little madness to help produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
4: Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
2: Your ears have been attuned to Martian madness. And if you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find more episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org.
4: And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio, because after all, you won't have internet access as you trudge the Martian landscape... Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, maybe a suggestion? Well, toss in some faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org.
1: Okay Mars, don't hang up, I wrote you a
2: song. You are my planet, my crimson planet, and you have water, oh yes it's true. I'm pretty sure that we have a future. Potatoes will soon grow on you. Hello?
1: <sighs> Took me like a month to write that.
4: Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The world is constantly changing and transforming.